Good morning, and welcome to Lighty's Church on this wonderful Mother's Day, where we can celebrate our mothers and all that they've done for us. If, oh, there I am. If uh, you are on the inside of, or, or, the, or the side of your pew that is closest to the center aisle, there is uh, a, a pad to, to mark your attendance. Please go ahead and sign that and pass that uh, down the pew at your convenience. Uh, this morning, um, I have just a couple of announcements that I would like to share with you. Um, the first is that next Saturday, May 15th, God's Treasure House will have a uh, fundraising spaghetti dinner from 3 to 6. It is a free fundraising dinner, which doesn't seem to make sense, except that it is that there will be a free will offering uh, to help support all that... Um, God's Treasure House does. So just be aware of that. Put that on your calendar. Enjoy a wonderful spaghetti meal. I um, also want to say that uh, rummage sale is upon us. Uh, if you have been holding uh, items for rummage uh, at home, um, because our room has been just quite literally packed to the door, um, thank you for holding it, and please bring it either today or, or through Tuesday as uh, we set up for rummage sale, and then come on out and buy it back uh, on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, uh, I am told that uh, Mary Beth will be in the narthex so that you can sign up for times to come and help, whether it's, it's sort or fold or, or whatever the case, but I do know that they are looking for a number of people to help on Thursday to help tear down from the rummage sale uh, starting at 6 p.m. So if you're available Thursday, that would be a wonderful way to help and serve. I also want to, to let you know that uh, May 22nd, Saturday, May 22nd from 9 to 12, we will have a, um, a, a cleanup day, kind of a spring outside cleanup day around the property. If you are interested in uh, helping with that, please contact Kendall Musselman uh, just to, to have everyone work together to, to spruce things up. Also, next, uh, on, on the 23rd, we are going to have communion. And the reason I'm bringing this up, there's also a small note of reminder in the bulletin, is that we're going to change uh, the way that we're serving it slightly. Um, since the start of the pandemic, um, we've had uh, people come row by row up to the front. Um, in a couple weeks when we celebrate communion, we are going to have the elders go into the rows, specifically the empty rows, you know, as we have every other pew, and they're going to serve the elements to you. So you don't need to um, get up, as it were. You can stay seated, and it will be a little bit more uh, similar to what we are accustomed. If, uh, and I will say that the elders who are serving will have gloves and masks on. If you're not comfortable with that, we are still going to do things the way that we had been doing them in the fellowship hall. So we just wanted to give you a little bit of warning just to, to note that there's going to be a little bit of a change in procedure, and that way you'll know what to do and where to go. Now we are gathered this morning to worship the Lord, to worship the Lord, our tri triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we come to worship Him, let us, let us join together in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. And Lord, we pray as we, we gather to, to proclaim your name, as we magnify your excellencies, we pray that your spirit would be in, in our midst, working within us, guiding us and directing us to you. Lord, we recognize that uh, of our own power, we, we are a people who would run far from you not wanting to be uh, confined or constrained to your will. But in Christ, Lord, we know that you are perfect and awesome and wonderful, and all of your purposes for us are best for us. And so, Lord, we, we are gathered here this morning. We, we are gathered to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we do so acknowledging that you are God, and we praise you for it. Amen. Amen. And now, uh, let us all join in uh, this worship, the Lord, worship of the Lord through song uh, with the hymns printed in your bulletin. Together as we sing this morning, I invite you to take out your hymnal, turn to number 511. Uh, or follow along with the words on the screen as we begin by singing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fades, his heart is fixed, I rest on his unchanging grace. Five hundred and thirty five. I am thy, O Lord, I have heard thy voice. 
542. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. And indeed, Lord, um, it is our prayer that you would be glorified in our lives, in our homes, and in your church today. In this place, uh, across this country, and across the world today, as Christians are gathering to praise you, Lord. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is good to give thanks to you, Lord, and to sing praises to your name. Thank you for the privilege we have of gathering in this place this morning to sing your praises, to read the truth of your word, and to hear your word proclaimed. And Father, we ask now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would lead and guide us uh, throughout the remainder of this service, uh, direct Pastor Michael as he preaches this morning, that we may indeed worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. And before you're seated, feel free to greet those around you in the name and the love of Christ. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the service. By God's grace. By God's grace. For our scripture reading this morning, uh, we are going to begin in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. This is Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6. It's found on page 613 of uh, your pew Bible. Ezekiel 33, uh, verses 1 through 6. Listen now to God's word. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, 
If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Amen. Amen. Our second passage this morning, which is... Uh, another, uh, in another of Paul's epistles is Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 6. Here Paul is giving a warning to those who uh, claim Christ but are seeking to, to be justified by the law. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. Listen here to God's word. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Amen. Now, for our primary text this morning, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and then skipping down to verses 10 through 16. Again, that's Titus chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and then 10 through the end of the chapter. Listen here to God's word. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then skipping down to verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Amen. Let's now bow our heads and meditate silently on God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in the name of our Redeemer, and we pray, Lord, as we reflect on your revelation, that we remember just that, that it is your revelation. It is your word to us that we might know you and that we might respond in faith. We pray that this morning our hearts and minds would be drawn to you through your word. Amen. Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Clearly, Paul, in, in, in saying this, missed a few of the basics of kind of the introductory communications class. Right? Normally, when you want to talk to someone, you have a message for someone, you want them to listen to it, to not immediately emotionally shut down and just disengage, you usually don't call them liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But that's what Paul does here. And I think we need to figure out why he does such a thing. Uh, because again, that's not normal communication. Uh, well, not normal in polite circles. So, so why is it that Paul uh, speaks in this way? And I think we have a clue in verse 11. Uh, there are people that are teaching wrong things. So, so the work, the gospel work in, in Crete is being hindered. And the result of the, this wrong teaching is that whole households are being disrupted. And so Paul, jealous for, for the, the, the right faith of, of the people to whom he has ministered, responds with this rather sharp vocabulary. Now, as this morning as we look at this, uh, we're going to try to piece together why exactly he would speak in these terms. And as we do so, obviously we, we skipped a few verses. And as we, we look at Titus, uh, what I what I think we need to realize is that nothing that Paul has said would have been, a, thus far, would have been a surprise to Titus. Remember, he's the guy that Paul has sent into difficult places to minister in congregations that, that have wayward teaching to try to bring them back to the gospel. As he's ministering in Crete, he knows what's going on. Paul, in his letter, is reminding Titus of his original uh, purpose. That is to establish elders. We're going to look, Lord willing, next week at the qualifications for an elder that Paul gives to Titus. 
But because Titus already knows the difficulties, this morning I want to take just a second before we look at the qualifications of an elder to see the grounds or the reason why there needs to be an elder. And the answer is because there's liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And worse. So Paul is, is writing to Titus and he's communicating the reality of the difficulty of gospel ministry in Crete. And he's highlighting that the people are unformed with regard to being a church and uninformed with regard to their understanding of the gospel. As a result, Paul shows that uh, people come in, false teachers come in and teach incorrect doctrine, teach incorrect, uh, uh, they, they place incorrect demands on God's people and is leading them astray and is upsetting whole households. Paul says that's, that's not good. This morning as we, we look at this text, what we see is that in response to this, Paul reminds Titus that he is to establish faithful men to be elders in every city throughout Crete, to establish the church, and he's to do that in part so that those who are in opposition are silenced. Though we don't live in Crete, though the opposition to the gospel that we face is, is a little different than the issues that Titus faced, Lord willing, we'll see this morning that the same proclamation given to Titus will also be given to us as we push against the culture, the wider culture around us, which rejects the Lord. Now, as we look at the circumstances of Titus, we do have to spend a little bit of time thinking about the, this phrase in verse 12. Uh, I'll just read it again. It says this, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Why would Paul do such a thing? Well, um, and, and I would even ask, then where does it come from? Because he says it's one of their number. It turns out we have a pretty good idea who said this. Uh, we're not certain, but the early church fathers um, ascribed this to Epimenides, the Greek philosopher who was from Crete. Now, you know, we don't have his work. If you go to the library and you look for the work on Epimenides, they probably have some of his works, but you can't find this in there. Uh, so we have to rely on those who've gone before us. But even if it's not true that it's by Epimenides, what is clear from a survey of ancient writings about Crete is that nobody thought Cretans were any good. They were called liars and robbers. They were uh, untrustworthy. They were swindlers. They were people that you, you couldn't rely upon. Paul uses one of their own to remind them that everybody thinks that they're miserable. Now we might wonder why in the world he would do such a thing. And, and as I think, thought about it, I, I thought through a, a silly example. You know, I grew up in Indiana. I spent a few years living in Arkansas before coming to seminary in, in Pennsylvania. And while there are um, a, a huge number of similarities across the country, there are some differences, cultural differences, I mean. Um, 
One such difference is the attitude on the road uh, to the speed limit and the presence of a turnpike. Uh, to be fair, in, in Indiana, we have a turnpike, one turnpike road, and it, but it is so far north, it might as well be in Michigan. Most Hoosiers avoid paying to go on the road. Um, even for my wedding, some of my groomsmen said, was well, there a better way to cross the state so that I don't have to pay money? It's just not what we do. Okay, so, right, so the turnpike, that's different. Being a good soon-to-be Pennsylvanian, I took the turnpike, and as I moved into the state and would travel on the roads, I, was, I, I recognized I spent most of my time in the right-hand lane feeling my car rock back and forth subtly as cars whizzed past me in the passing lane. I remember talking to some of my classmates at, Sim, at Westminster who were from Pennsylvania, and you know what their defense was? Yeah, well, those Jersey drivers, they're really bad. <laughs> so my brother uh, now lives in western New York. Again, grew up in Indiana, same, same sort of vehicular setup. When he moved to western New York, he felt the same thing, being in the passing lane, feeling that nice little awkward rock as the cars whiz past you. And he talked to folks there, and they said the same thing. Well, you think this is bad, you should see New Jersey. So what, what do we conclude then? Well, we could think of it in, in the sense that, oh, maybe I should write a letter to some traffic warden in New Jersey and say, you need to get a handle on your drivers. They're awful. I'm from Indiana. And then even worse, the people in Pennsylvania and New York say they're awful. What's going on? And he could respond and say, no, 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 you don't understand. The Pennsylvanians and New Yorkers are just jealous. And if they have a problem with Jersey drivers, it's because they are on their way to our beautiful shores, clogging up our roads, right? We, we understand that, that states have rivalries, and, and this is a silly example, right? But, but states have rivalries, different people have rivalries, and it's somewhat natural to say such things. But the evidence of the unworthiness of the Cretan people is far more damning when it comes from one of their own. Right? It would be as if a New Jersey resident said, yeah, you're right, we've got awful drivers. Here, whoever this Cretan is, and, and I think it's Epimenides, but whoever this Cretan is, in, insofar as he's reporting on the state of life and dishonesty in the, the area of Crete, on the island of Crete, the people had to, that had to smart a bit, that had to hurt a bit. It makes me wonder as I think about that, what an American might say of American culture. While I think that there would be a whole bunch to try to encapsulate both good and bad, uh, within the vein of, of this sermon, uh, I might suggest that our culture is hedonistic, materialistic, and control focused. And what I mean by that is that our culture seems determined to get the greatest amount of pleasure from physical things, the possessions we have, the experience we, we, we go through, the sensations we feel. And then on an individual level, people assume that they are in total control of their lives, their desires, and what is right and wrong. Now, Let's just kind of hold that to the side for a moment as we think more particularly about Crete and Paul's ministry through Titus there. 
we see that the ancient world as a whole, and including Paul, as he says, I, this, this comment is right, have a rather dim view of the Cretans. No doubt then, Paul's preaching to them would have resonated as he talked about the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and that by faith in Jesus, they could be righteous. That had to be a balm to them. Everybody else says they're no good. Paul says in Christ they can be righteous. I would imagine that they took up that message with great fervor. But, as the descriptions are clear, they didn't have a, a wealth of resources of generations of men and women who were, were seeking to honor the Lord. They were uninformed. And being uninformed is never a good thing. That statement that ignorance is bliss, it's false. Ignorance might be simpler, ignorance might be easier, but rarely, if ever, is ignorance good or blissful or blessed. The Cretans, as well as the people in Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus and other New Testament congregations would have all been able to attest to this. Had the Cretans had a mature understanding of who they were in Christ, they would have been able to stand strong. We might think about this uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 6. The, the author uh, says this. He says, this hope, right, and it's the hope of the gospel, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. And one which enters within a veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The hope here is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope that of, of all of the promises of God that have been fulfilled in Christ, right? And, and, and all of that. But the author of Hebrews describes it slightly differently in the person. He says it's an anchor of the soul. Well, what does that mean? It, it means that as opposition to the gospel comes, as we understand the work of Christ, which is our hope, we are anchored. We're not tossed to and fro. Well, let's think about this in a little bit more detail. You know, there are many people that have just a basic, a very basic understanding of the gospel. They might know John 3.16 and they might be able to, to understand and sing, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, I don't want to disparage that, right? I don't, that is good and wonderful and we praise the Lord for such faith, knowing that it is a gift from God. But if that is the substance, the, to, the total substance of our understanding of the gospel... It's difficult to stand as belief in God is poked and prodded and pushed in our world. As people who, who um, are hedonistic, desiring pleasure, materialistic, looking for the stuff, push and prod and say, why don't you act in this way? Or why, if, if that's really true, why is it that, that this is so much more fun? As, as pressure comes, those who have a most basic understanding of the gospel will find it hard to stand firm. 
Now, I'm not trying to suggest here that just all we need to do is have a comprehensive collection of facts. And I'm not trying to say that, that each and every Christian must have all answers to all questions in life. Rather, what I'm saying is that as Christians dig into the Word of God, as, as opposition to the gospel comes, whether it's in the, the guise of philosophy or, or um, atheism or, or pleasure-seeking, as opposition to the gospel comes, if we are diligent to study the Word of God, we will find answers. Now, it might feel as though we're in the deep weeds, wandering around, and I understand that because it's difficult work. But if we remember that God's Word is inerrant, is inspired, and is His revelation to us, we will find that we are able to withstand attacks on our faith. The people in Crete didn't have that. They were uninformed. More so, they were unformed. They had no structure. We know this, obviously, because Titus says, uh, Paul says to Titus, establish elders, establish men to help lead the church and guide the church, provide a structure for it. And we see, because they were uninformed and unformed, the result in verses 10 and 11. Uh, read them with me again. It says this, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced... Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now, we can first say that this kind of seems to be a different group of people than the, the liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, the description of them is that they're rebellious, right? They're obstinate, they're, they're empty talkers. Um, they're teaching things for sordid gain. Now, as I say that, I recognize that Paul was not against a pastor or an elder receiving payment. But these people are doing so inappropriately. The reason why is because they're preaching nonsense. And they're taking advantage of the people. When an elder or pastor teaches nonsense and gets paid for it, the payment in and of itself is not bad. But when it's coupled to nonsense, it becomes sordid or scandalous or wrong. Now, we don't know fully what these men uh, were teaching as they came in, but we have a, a, a few indications in the text. The first is it, that it says that they were those of the circumcision, which is Paul's shorthand way of saying they're Jewish folks or Jewish Christians. And I put that in quotation marks because throughout Paul's ministry, there were these Jewish Christians who would go to various congregations and talk to people about their need to keep the, God, to keep the law. So, so Paul would have preached and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ, that by his life, death, and resurrection, we can be righteous. He would call on people to believe in Christ. It's the good news of the gospel, to which we say Amen. But then following behind would be a group of people who would say, well, hold on, Gentiles. If you want to be a Christian, first you must become Jewish. You must be circumcised, and you must take on all of the requirements of the law. It's basically saying Jesus plus the law. 
We see then that when Paul says that there are people coming in who are of the circumcision, it's likely a reference to Jewish people who are adding on extra things to the gospel and saying, you must do this or you must believe this in order to be saved. Now, he also describes in verse 14 that there's Jewish myths or the commandments of men. And both of those are kind of awkward phrases to talk about the law of God. So it could very well be that these people are adding on the law. It could very well be that they are, are adding on other odd beliefs. Um, perhaps that you have to be related to someone or follow in the tradition of an Old Testament figure um, that is inappropriate. Or they're just giving commandments that are from men and they're saying you need to do this in order to be saved. In either event, these are men who are turning away from the truth. And insofar as the Christians in Crete were beginning to follow them and listen to them, so also they were being led astray. To understand Paul's thoughts on this more fully, consider Galatians 5, 1 to 6. We read it earlier and it just, I'm going to highlight verse 2 again. It says, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and there we need to understand the whole of the law, that is to say that you, you, you say you believe in the Lord Jesus, but you're also now saying that you're receiving the law. He says, if you do that, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why? Because when you receive the law, you're saying, I am going to complete the law. I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to, to do the works of the law so that I can be righteous. So that I can be acceptable to God. If you're sitting here this morning or watching online and, and you're sitting here thinking that your actions, your thoughts, your attitudes make you acceptable to the Lord, let this verse sink in. That is to say that if you receive circumcision, if you receive the law, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you hear nothing else, hear that. So as Paul is ministering, or had ministered, and then left Titus to complete the work, Titus is, is ministering amongst people who don't have a fully orbed picture of what the gospel is, and it's an unformed church, and so there are these people coming in, and they're preaching Jesus, but other stuff too. They're leading people astray. Now, as we think about this, we recognize that we don't have Judaizers as such today. So what does this look like for us? It can look a lot of different ways, quite frankly. Some are obvious, some are not so. When I lived in Arkansas, I worked for the Navigators. I did campus ministry. And uh, as, while I did campus ministry, I had an opportunity to go to a kind of a church revitalization seminar. Uh, basically, there was a local church and they brought in a consultant and uh, the consultant asked the, the pastors of the church, um, you know, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? What is your vision for the church? You know, basic kind of churchy questions. And then the consultant would say, well, maybe you should think about doing this or this or this to go, you know, moving forward. And it was fine insofar as it goes. My campus director said, hey, they're bringing in the consultant to do this with the church. What if 
all the campus people just kind of hang out over here on the side. They listen and they apply the same principles to the campus. Okay, well and good. So the, the, the consultant was pushing one of the pastors in a good way. And he said, you know, what does this look like for people to live out a, a, a life consistent with faith, consistent with the, the call of the gospel? And finally, one of the pastors with a flair for language said that if the church, and he was speaking of that church, uh, were to be a church that loved the Lord and followed the Lord, it would be a church without any new cars. And when I heard that, I was blown away. I, thought, I was blown away for one simple reason. I'm thinking like, very generally, how do you get people to love the Lord, walk, follow the Lord? And, and I'm struggling to come up with specifics. And here this guy says, no new cars. And I was like, I don't know how you got there, but that's kind of interesting. But the answer didn't sit well with me. And after a while, I was able to speak with him. And basically, as he flushed out his idea, it was this. If you're serious about following Christ, which we should all be, uh, we know that the goods of the world don't matter, right? That, that your, your new car isn't going to get you anywhere with regard to the Lord. I, we'd agree wholeheartedly. And then he said, and if you're serious about your convictions, you're going to, your Christian convictions, you're going to spend whatever resources you have in the furtherance of the gospel, so that means you shouldn't buy a new car. You should hang on to your old beater or you should buy something old and used up to begin with and give the money to the church. Now, to be clear, he wasn't trying to say the church needs your money. He wasn't being, you know, he wasn't a shyster in that regard. He, he wasn't saying, um, you know, uh, uh, he, he wasn't desperate for funds. He had a genuine desire for his people to follow the Lord. But what was he doing? He was placing on them a demand that the scriptures do not. What do the scriptures say? They say, honor the Lord with your wealth. So maybe that means you hang on to your car a little bit longer, and maybe it means you give extra money to the church. I don't know. Maybe it means that you take the, the money that the Lord has provided for you, and you invest it in a new vehicle. Maybe it's a brand new vehicle. And you try to honor the Lord and glorify the Lord through your use of it. The scriptures say that the Lord loves a cheerful giver who gives not under compulsion. But this pastor, in his eagerness to have people be zealous to follow the Lord, was beginning to put stipulations on how to live and think and act that go beyond what the scriptures say. He's in danger of confusing the gospel for, the, for his congregation. He's in danger of le leading them astray. And I picked this example, there are many, because it is somewhat subtle. It is a little bit harder to, to, to see. Some of the obvious ones we say, oh, well, that's nonsense. But this one would have been harder to catch. Indeed, I didn't understand it fully when I heard it. And it only upon further reflection did I see that that wasn't a good thing to do. So how is Titus, how is the church in Crete to respond to these people? These people that are coming in and, and adding to the gospel. These people that are coming in and, and leading whole households away from the gospel. He says that you're to appoint elders in all of the cities to establish the church. He also says in verses 10 and 11, 
that these men must be silenced. Now, we live in a cancel culture. And so the first time that, you know, I kind of read through this and, and think about it, I'm uneasy. Now, maybe I should uh, kind of define what a cancel culture is. Um, I'll give you an, a, a kind of an example of it that gets played out about every three or four weeks. Imagine an actor who's in some show. Maybe it's your favorite show, I don't know. And uh, this actor or actress tweets something that is racially insensitive. Who knows what racially insensitive means, but you, you understand it's, it's something that cuts against the grain of the culture. Right now, our, our response as a culture is to say that that person needs to be canceled. It's to say that, that it's, you know, it's not to say that that person needs to delete their tweet. It's not to say that that person needs to explain their tweet or give a, a correction to their tweet. It's to say that that person should no longer be allowed to work. That person should be, no longer be, have any place within that TV show that you love so much. We see this happen, as I said, week in and week out. As Christians, we would say that's not good. That's not right. Christians living in this country, we would recognize that providentially, the First Amendment allows for us to have certain freedoms of speech and the ability to communicate them. And so we wouldn't want somebody to be canceled just because we disagree with them. But even more than that, as Christians, we recognize that we are all, at one point in time, alienated from God. Sinners cut off from His mercy and grace. And that in the Lord's tender mercies, the Lord Jesus reconciled us to God. As a response, he calls us to love one another and to be reconciled to one another when we have differences. The result is that when I hear something I don't like, I can reject the argument and accept that the person who made it is a man or a woman made in the image of God. I can disagree with their argument and honor them as a person. Our culture says, no, you can't do that. If you, if you don't like me, then, or if you don't like my argument, then you don't like me. And we would say, no. And so, as I said, you know, when, is it really that, that Paul is wanting Titus just to silence people and, and be done with them like our culture would? And I think the answer is no. What's going on here, as Paul is calling for elders to be appointed and to serve and to build up the church, he, he's, he's calling for them to proclaim the truth. So that as someone comes in preaching nonsense, preaching idle words, preaching something other than Jesus, which is required for salvation, the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, and the congregation need to respond and say, no, that's not right. No, that's not what the scriptures say. And they need to just be very clear. It, it's not to say that this person can't live and work and do other things. It's, but it, with regard to their teaching of the scriptures, they're not right. That's simply what it means to silence them in this regard. We see a picture of what this looks like as, as you know, to, to give context for what Paul means when he speaks to Titus uh, in Ezekiel 33. Now we read the first six chapters of the chapter. Sorry, we read the first six verses of the chapter. And what we see there is um, the Lord speaking through 
Ezekiel, and he, and he says this, right? You know, there's a city and it appoints a watchman to keep watch over, over everything that's going on and for potential dangers. And the sword is coming. Now we know the Lord is the one who's bringing the sword, but he said the sword is coming. Now, obviously the elder can do two things. One is he can blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, say the sword is coming, which we understand to be the judgment of God. Or he can say, I'm, I can't be bothered and do nothing. And if he, if he says, no, the judgment of God is coming, the people likewise, they can either respond and, and, and get to safety or they can be swept up in the judgment. What we see here is that whether the person doesn't listen to the elder or the watchman or whether the watchman doesn't do anything, you know, the, the sword comes and it takes them away and they are judged for their iniquity. However, if the watchman doesn't warn the people, he also bears the responsibility of the blood of the individual. How does this relate to Titus working in Crete, establishing elders? It's quite simple. As, for, as messages that are, go against the gospel come into the community, the church is to say, no, that's not right. In essence, they need to sound the alarm and say, if you hold to that, and when the judgment of God comes, it will not go well with you. People then need to respond or not, but we pray that they would. What the elder cannot do is nothing. What the people cannot do is nothing. What Titus cannot do is nothing. He has to warn the Cretans those who are uninformed, that those extra messages that are added onto the gospel are not good and will lead to ruin. So earlier this morning, I, I posited that if you had an American speaking of an American culture, you might say that that is hedonistic, materialistic, control-focused. Again, that's uh, that we live in a culture that seeks the greatest amount of pleasure through its interaction with material goods, you know, the things we have, the, experience we, the experiences we live, and that as individuals, our culture seems to think that they're in absolute control of their lives. Insofar as that is the message of our culture, we need to reject that. We need to recognize that if that's the attitude that we accept, then when the sword of judgment comes, we will be swept away with it. We need to not stand with our culture, but silence that argument. How do we see this expressed? You know, I've preached, Pastor Steve and Pastor John, have all, we've all preached on various aspects of, say, the LGBTQ plus issues, the whole array of things that, that our current culture wrestles with. That's one expression of this. But to be honest, there's expressions of this that are all across our political spectra. Uh, th there's expressions of this all across religious conviction. And one of the ways that we see it is primarily with that last one. That individuals become 
convinced that they are right and in control and you know they get to do what they want. So as we engage with the culture around us, as we see that it pushes in on us, I would propose a litmus test for you and those who might influence you. Do you, do you think that it's possible, this is a litmus test, do you think that it's possible that God might have a desire that is contrary to yours? Or do you think that you and God pretty much agree on everything? Right? I, I will speak for myself and say that as I consider my own uh, sinful impulses apart from the Lord, I recognize that there's all kinds of things that in my flesh I want to go do or, or, or according to my nature I want to see done. And I recognize that God and I don't agree. So the question then, the, the other part of the litmus test is if you find that you and the Lord do disagree on something, who gets to change their mind? Amen. If we say we change our mind, then what we see is an ongoing recognition that, that God exists, he has a purpose, and it's our design to be conformed to him. If we fail the litmus test, we either think that that well, you know, God and I, we kind of have all this figured out together and basically I'm always right. That's the spirit of our age. That's something that we all, as God's people, need to wrestle with. Now, my hope and prayer for you all is my hope and prayer for, for me as well, that we recognize that in my flesh, in my sinful flesh, I still want to do things that God doesn't want me to do. And I need to bend my will toward his. But whatever those issues are, as we think about Titus and as we think about Paul preaching and working through Titus, what we see is an uninformed culture, right? That is easily swayed. So as we then think about our culture around us, as we kind of go through such a litmus test, may we have our hearts and minds focused on the Lord as he's revealed himself in his word. May we then celebrate our redemption, which is found in the Lord Jesus alone. Amen. Now let us all rise for our confession of sin. First, let us bow our heads and silently ask the, the Spirit to help us understand and confess our sins before the Lord. Now let us join in the corporate confession of sin. O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are nothing but earth and clay. You are our creator. We are the workmanship of your hands.
You are our Redeemer. We are the people redeemed by you. Our sins kindle your wrath, but remember we are called by your name and bear your banner. Do not chastise us in your fury, but in your mercy chasten us leniently. Preserve, we ask, the work which your grace has begun in us, that the whole world may acknowledge you to be our God and Savior. We abandon all other hope and flee to the precious covenant by which our Lord Jesus Christ, through his own body and blood, has reconciled us to you. Look, therefore, not on us, but on the face of Christ. May your face shine upon us as you guide and govern us by your word and spirit. Amen. As we think of the Lord guiding us and governing us by his word and spirit, our assurance of pardon is quite fitting. Let us now sing hymn 659, Lead On, O King Eternal. now confess our shared faith using the Apostles' Creed on the blue laminated cards in the pew before you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, Lord, um, and we acknowledge uh, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We acknowledge that we are so made, uh, being knit together by you in our mother's wombs. Lord, as we think about that truth that we all share. Lord, we praise you for mothers. We praise you for moms who, who change our diapers. Hopefully not anymore for in my case, but we pray, Lord, that you would um, 
Thank you, we thank you for, uh, for, for our, our mothers who, who care for us, who feed us, who clothe us, who work countless hours so that we might know who you are, Lord, even from a very young age. We thank you for mothers. We pray, Lord, that you um, would restore the dignity of motherhood in our land. As our, our land seeks to uh, diminish and denigrate the, the role of women, Lord, we want to say no. That is not how things should be. We pray, Lord, that you would bring about a restoration in this world wherein we would see and understand your created order, wherein we would see that all of us have been knit together in our mother's wombs. Lord, we pray you, praise you for mothers and all that they do. As we uh, consider the world in which we live, Lord, I lift up the nation of Djibouti to you. Uh, this uh, Muslim nation is... Uh, <laughs> known for having the hottest average temperature of any nation on earth. Lord, as we think about um, what it means to, to find peace and refreshment in a, in a dry and weary land, Lord, uh, my heart goes out for those of Djibouti. We pray, Lord, that um, you would be at work amongst those peoples. The, the few and scattered congregations of Christians that are present, Lord, we pray that you would allow them by your spirit to thrive and grow and advance the gospel. Uh, Lord, we've, we've been uh, participating in gospel gleanings efforts in India and Chad and Niger these past two years. Lord, we pray the same things for those that are in Djibouti, that, that your your people there would have a desire to, to see your name spread and that you would be raising up faithful men to serve as elders, leaders within your body. We pray um, for the Muslim majority. We, we're grateful that uh, there are official freedoms that allow for, for Christianity to be spread. But Lord, we recognize that there is still hostility to the gospel and still the, the, the reality of ostracization um, when people convert. We pray, Lord, that you would be softening hearts, changing them, moving them by your spirit to yourself. Lord, as we consider our nation, as we consider uh, the issues at hand, we, we think about um, our culture's headlong pursuit of pleasure, our culture's headlong trust and desire for material goods. Lord, may we say no. May your people have a strong, united voice in saying no. That is not the way to live. Instead, may we see in this land a revival wherein 
your spirit comes and, and helps us to, to apprehend the, the length and width and depth of your greatness and our own sin. That we might repent of it as a people. That we might seek you. That we might reject uh, these attempts to redefine reality, to redefine what is good and redefine what is wrong. We pray that um, our nation would seek you. Lord, as we think about uh, the missionaries that we support, I, I lift up Colleen Estes to you, who is in the midst of, of uh, ongo- ongoing spiritual darkness and brokenness. As we consider the, the suicides that have happened in the Pekanjikum community and, and other deaths in addition to that, Lord, we pray for Colleen that you would strengthen her and preserve her. We pray that you would um, be at work within her in the community. We pray that you would raise up leaders for that community. Men who are faithful to proclaim your word and men who are competent to counsel the deep needs there. Lord, we also lift up two of our our missionary works and gospel gleanings in India and Chad and Niger. Though we are no longer, as it were, collecting a dollar a day for India, our our heart still goes to the Urukala people. As we hear day after day the effects of COVID in India, India, Lord, we pray that you would bring an end to this pandemic. Not just in India, but worldwide. Particularly in India, we might say. We pray that um, this uh, increased presence of COVID would not hinder the gospel going forward. We pray that it would um, give an opportunity for people to question their own sovereignty and turn to you in faith. Lord, we also lift up Chad and Niger, and we thank, Lord, of the instability of the land. It is difficult to, to plant churches when there is no security. So, we, Lord, we pray for a stable land. We, we pray for, for leaders to rule with equity. We pray for, for leaders to, to make judicious and wise decisions for the land to prosper. And we pray for your church in Chad and Niger that uh, your spirit would be going forth ahead of, uh, of the church leaders and missionaries that are being sent out, ahead of the training seminars, that your name might be glorified. And Lord, I lift up Lydie's church to you. I continue to pray as I began last week that you would raise up faithful men to serve as, as um, elders within your church. We pray also... Um, for the senior pastor. Lord, we know that in your, in your sovereign care, in your providential care, that man is selected. So Lord, we pray that you'd bring him here. We pray also that our congregation would wait patiently for your timing. In all of this, Lord, we pray that our church would be steadfast and movable, always abounding in your work. Not... Uh, moving, bobbing to and fro with the latest cultural trend. Lord, may 
Lydie's church remain faithful to you for generations to come. Lord, we, we think of those in our midst who um, are, are uh, struggling uh, with regard to their health. We think of Ruth Bougay. We, we think of Janie Inyang. Lord, we think of Joy Myers and others who have uh, ongoing issues. We, we also think of those who have had acute issues, uh, hospitalizations and, and sickness. Lord, we even think of uh, COVID as it has touched various members of our congregation and some are still dealing with its effects. Lord, we pray that you would comfort your people, that you would provide uh, a, a restoration of physical well-being. And we pray that you would turn spirits, hearts, inner, you know, our inner person to you, our inner man to you, that we would be comforted in all circumstances, with little or a lot. And Lord, we now join our voices to our hearts praying the prayer you instructed, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our closing hymn uh, this morning is hymn 587, Take Time to Be Holy. Please stand and join with me in singing.
The chancel area will be open for prayer. If you want to pray uh, with others, please come. If you want to pray by yourself, please come. Uh, Any need you might have. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to that which is true. Render to no man evil for evil, but strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, honor all men. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by your words and by your deeds, and in this way, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace.